if you have a Bible, I can invite you to turn to Second uh, Samuel chapter 2. It's page uh, 305 in the, the Red Pew Bibles. For anyone visiting tonight, we have been spending the last three or four months just uh, revisiting David's story. We started at 1 Samuel 16. We're going to go right through to 2 Samuel 5. So we're nearly at the end of this series. Uh, we've come to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Um, I'm going to take a bit of time and actually read the story. Uh, it's a great story. It continues to be a great story. So please, if you wouldn't mind, uh, we'll stand for the public reading of God's word. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and made him uh, and brought him over to Mahanim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashurai, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was forty years old when he became king of Israel, and he reigned for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeshurai, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool, one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off, twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazurim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zerai were there, Joab, Abishai, and Ashiel. Now, Ashiel was, a fleet-footed as a, or was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Ashiel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Ashiel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Ashiel, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Ashiel refused to give up the the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Ashiel's stomach and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Ashiel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abashai pursued Abner. 
And as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Amma near Gia on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their brothers? Joab answered, as surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued their pursuit of their brothers until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the whole Bethron and came to Mahamim. Then Joab returned from pursuing Abner and assembled all his men. And besides Ashiel, 19 of David's men were found missing. But, David, uh, but David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Ashiel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. And then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. Grab a seat. Last week, if you were here, we, we left David singing. Uh, but it wasn't an upbeat song of celebration or praise that he was singing. It was a powerful lament that he had written himself and set music to. And he sang it in response to news of Saul's death. For years, Saul had made David's life a complete misery. He had tried to kill him on numerous occasions. And he forced him into hiding. But despite Saul's murderous intentions towards David, David retained and maintained this deep respect for the Lord's anointed. And so whenever David did receive news that Saul had been killed on the battlefield or had died on the battlefield, there was no gloating on David's part. There was no sense of relief or indifference. There was, as we looked at last, there was genuine grief, very public expressions of grief. And so clothes were ripped. There was mourning, there were tears, and there was fasting. And then David wrote a song. Because that was often how David expressed his feelings. He, he, he put them down in lyrics. And he, he sang about the reality that, that the mighty had fallen. Saul and Jonathan had been killed. And so one of the issues that we considered last week was the power of song. And just the gift that music is to us. But as we finished last week, we made the point that we're not a major turning point in this story. It's a landmark moment. The king is dead. The first king of Israel has passed away and now the path is open for his successor. And we all know who that successor is going to be. And it now seems imminent. But as so often is the case with life and with God's story and with ours, Things don't run smoothly. Things don't always pan out as we expect or hope. There are more twists and more turns, more delays, more distractions. And so it's still going to be a few more chapters before David actually becomes king of all Israel. God's promises, God's word always comes through, but rarely as quickly as we would like. 
God's word always comes through, but often not on our timetable. And so as we pick up the story in chapter 2, it opens with this phrase, in the course of time. And so immediately you realize that there has been a period of time between Saul's death and now, between the end of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2. We have no idea how long, but it certainly wasn't the next day or the next week. In the course of time implies more waiting. And David has waited, again, those who've been following this series, well, David has waited something like 13 to 15 years from the moment he was anointed by Samuel. He's waited 13 to 15 years from that moment until now. 15 years waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled in his life. And even now, as we just read, he only initially becomes king of Judah. And he actually is king there for seven and a half years before he becomes king of all Israel. So that's 20 plus years of waiting. And waiting, and we've talked about this before, it's never easy. Waiting is frustrating. It's unnatural in a culture that thrives on instant everything. We live in a a culture that hates to wait. It's so easy to lose your focus when you're waiting. Even to lose heart. To wonder that what you've been waiting for, is it actually ever going to happen? Are things ever going to change? Things ever going to improve? Are things ever going to get better? Are things ever going to turn out as you hoped, as you expected? And one of the key things that you realize as you engage with God's word and the stories in God's word is that delay is not unusual. Waiting and having to wait is actually typical rather than exceptional. And it seems that that's that's the way God works. And therefore, throughout the Bible, you find God promising things to people, but then there being this period of waiting. This is going to happen, but you're going to have to wait for it. And so God promises Abraham and Sarah a child, and they have to wait 25 years. They have to wait to the point where it's pushed to kind of laughable levels. God promises Noah that there's going to be a flood, but it's going to be a long time coming for Noah. He's going to have to put up with a lot of ridicule, a lot of abuse in the meantime. It turns out 125 years from when God promises there's going to be this flood and the first major drops of rainfall. 125 years waiting. Jacob has to wait 14 years to get the wife he wanted. Joseph has to wait a considerable length of time before he sees his family again. Moses has to wait 40 years in the back end of a desert before he's sent by God to rescue the Israelites. You could argue that Jesus had to wait 30 years before his ministry was launched. The apostles have to wait for 10 days, which maybe doesn't seem like a long time before the promised Holy Spirit comes, but given their context, that must have been a long wait. For 2,000 plus years, we've been waiting for the second advent. 
still we wait. And waiting seems to be part and parcel of of the Christian life. And often it's in the waiting that you grow. It's often in the waiting that you discover and you stretch, despite the difficulties and the impatience and the frustrations. And during the week, as I was preparing for tonight, I came across just this list of verses that, that communicate and emphasize the importance of actually having to wait on God. And why it is such a critical factor in God's ways. And so what I just want to do is I simply want to take a moment and slowly read and show you some of these verses and just allow God's word to speak. And so allow God's word to speak and I hope I won't get in the way of your life or into your life and into your circumstances and into your waiting. So if you're here tonight and you're waiting, hear what what some of the things that God's word tells us. Let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon him for he cares for you the Lord is good to those who wait on him to the soul who seeks him it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the kind of rescue that God brings. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Truly, my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He is my defense. I will not be greatly moved. My soul waits silently for God alone. For my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. And now... Lord, what do I wait for? My hope's in you. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. Then these words, lead me in your truth. Teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for you. And those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, shall run and not be weary, shall walk and not faint. Waiting. Not easy, but incredibly important. We discover, we learn, we stretch, we grow. Back to 2 Samuel 2 verse 1. In the course of time, God's time, not ours. And with God's time, it inevitably probably means there's going to be a wait. Let's move on. Next phrase in verse 1 is equally telling and important. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord. 
And this phrase and this idea and this practice appears seven times in David's story. We've come across it three times already. This is the fourth. There are three more. And at critical moments in David's life, it seems that he recognized his need to refer to God. To refer to God for leading and guidance. To discover a way forward. To discern God's will. And therefore, rather than do his own thing, rather than rush into something time and time again, seven times at least here, we read that David inquires of the Lord. He turns to God to seek direction, to seek wisdom in order to determine, well, what is my next course of action going to be? And every single time, every single time that David inquires of the Lord, we read God responds. And here in 2 Samuel 2, it's no different. So here's what it says. And we read it. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. Where shall I go? The Lord says, Hebron. And very often, again, as as you read scripture and you engage with with God's story, it's, it's how it worked. That God communicated openly with his people. He spoke directly to them like he did here. He spoke directly to Abraham whenever he explicitly says, listen, just up sticks, leave Ur and go to somewhere where I'll show you. He spoke to Moses via a burning bush. He spoke to the Israelites via Moses. He spoke via larger than life prophets who became God's mouthpiece at a particular point in time and moment in history. And I know I've said this before, but wouldn't it be great that whenever you inquired of the Lord, whenever you desperately needed to hear from God, that you heard an audible voice? Or that a bush in your back garden burst into flames and started speaking? Or that some larger than life character walked into your life and spoke a word from God? Wouldn't that be just great if it worked like that? And I'm not about to suggest that God can't and never does some of those things. I'm not about to deny the possibility of audible voices or dramatic kind of writing in the sky. But what we've got to realize and accept and admit and thank God for is that his primary way of communicating with us today, with you and me here corporately and individually, is through Scripture. And so we're now people of the book. And therefore we passionately believe, and it's one of the reasons why I just took time to read Scripture. We passionately believe that through Scripture, God speaks. God communicates in a clear and a discernible way. That Scripture is a lamp to our feet. It guides, it directs. That scripture is a mirror that reveals. That scripture is a fire that purifies and refines. That scripture is a hammer as it describes itself that deconstructs and reconstructs. That scripture is spiritual nourishment. That man doesn't live on bread alone but on every word that comes from God's mouth. That scripture is a weapon of mass instruction. It's the sword of the spirit. That scripture is a scalpel, this double-edged sword that cuts us open, that exposes us, that heals. That God's word in our hands is a gift and a privilege and through it, 
God is still speaking, still leading, still directing. And so when we inquire of the Lord, as David does here, the Lord responds. And the primary way that God responds to us is via his word. And so the issue, I suppose, is, are we inquiring? Do we turn to God's word on a regular basis whenever we are wondering, well, what do I do next? What do I do in this situation? How do I handle this relationship? Many of those in scripture didn't have this. And so had to rely on different means. But we have the privilege of this. And therefore it's critical we keep inquiring, we keep listening, we keep turning, we keep expecting. Thank God for his word and how he communicates to us through it. Let's move on. That's verse one covered. Verse two. (laughs) It then says, in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord and then we go on and it says, so David went up from there. In other words, what we we discover is that having heard God speak, having inquired, having heard God say, yep, go up, go to Hebron, David does exactly what God says. In other words, David obeys. And that's that's the vital component in this. It's, It's not just about listening to what God says to us through his word as we inquire, as we seek gains. The real issue is then, well, what do we do with what God says? David goes up. David takes God at his word and lives it out, puts it into practice. And there are times, yes, whenever we feel, you know something, I need need more information, I need more clarity. We don't quite get what God is saying, but as someone has commented, though we may occasionally be in need of clarification and may, uh, may not always feel we understand God's direction in our lives, we should devote ourselves to living up the light, living up to the light we have received while praying for further clarification. God has revealed so much to us. Let's live in light of that as we continue to inquire of him regarding some of the other details. David inquires of the Lord and then David does what God says. And so he takes, it says, his entire family and all the men who were with him and their families and he goes to where God says. And it's there. And then this is this critical moment in the story. It's there that the men of Judah anoint David king over the house of Judah. And there is a sense in which, okay, a certain amount of the waiting's now over. David's destiny begins to unfold, but it's not going to unfold completely for another seven and a half years. But back to the present moment. I think it's really interesting. What is the first thing David does as king? What is the very first thing he does? Well, according to verses 4 to 7, he reaches out and sends a message of thanksgiving and encouragement to a group of people. If you were here a couple of weeks ago as we looked at the final chapter in 1 Samuel, remember that these people of Jabesh Gilead, they had been helped by Saul. One of the first things that Saul did whenever he did become king was help these people. And they never forgot it. Even though years had passed, they never forgot Saul's kindness to them. And so whenever news reaches this group of people that Saul's decapitated body is hanging off a city wall, 
they make the 20 mile round trip to go and bring his body back to where they were based to give him a proper burial and to fast for something like a week afterwards. You see, Saul's kindness to them wasn't forgotten and their kindness to Saul wasn't forgotten. And therefore, one of the first things that that David does as king is he sends a message to these people to say, do you know something? I'm praying for you that the Lord will now show you kindness. Saul had been kind to them. They had been kind to Saul. And now David, the first thing he does as king is he returns kindness in their direction. And the thing I was just thinking about this is that acts of kindness don't always get noticed at the time. But one thing's for sure, they are more appreciated and recognized than we sometimes realize. And it's also really important and good to say thank you and to bless those who have shown kindness to others. And in a sense, in some ways, that's what next Sunday night is partly about. As we invite someone here to kind of share a bit of their story and we say, you know, we want to express kindness to you for what you are doing, for what you gave up and what you've moved in to do in a slum in Bangkok and to bless you for what you're doing for those people. As Mark Twain said, kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. And so well done, David. What a great first thing to do as king, to show kindness to a group of people who have shown kindness and kind of had this knock-on effect. It's another example, I believe, of a man after God's own heart. And although everything seems now to be relatively good, and I'm just going to condense the word, I'm not about to go through every single verse from here on in. But although everything seems to be relatively good and got off to a good start, you, you do quickly discover, as often happens with God, that there are problems. And especially if you look at the first word of, of verse 9, it says, meanwhile, and, and, and you, you sense that, okay, so, something's wrong. And right enough, meanwhile, Abner, Saul's right-hand man, he's anointing this son of Saul that very few people were aware of. Because you remember, we thought all Saul's sons had died in the battlefield. But there's another son, and Abner has decided, no, listen, you're king, Ishbosheth. You are king. And so he sets him up as king in Israel while David is king in Judah. And we read then that civil war breaks out between these two houses. And initially there's this fight off between 12 of David's men and 12 of Ishbosheth's men. And the problem is that in this fight off, all 24 end up dead. And so the fighting escalates and there's a fierce battle and then there's this chase and there's this pursuit and we read of spears being plunged in and coming out. I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty horrendous. But at the end of it all, we discover that 19 on David's side fell, but 360 on Ishbeth's side are dead. And so you could say, well, that's advantage, David. And so that is where the story reaches as you come to the end of chapter 2. That David is king, 
but only king of Judah. He's going to be the king here for seven and a half years. And next, uh, in two weeks' time, we'll pick up the story again. But as we leave here this evening, let me encourage you to do these five things. Value waiting. Keep inquiring. Listen carefully to what God says to you through his word. And when you hear what God says, respond obediently. And in everything we do, let's promote kindness and bless others for showing it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the continued opportunity to engage with your word. And as we retrace David's story and the twists and turns, the ups and downs, the delays, the distractions, those moments when things look to be going so well and yet there there always seems to be another obstacle, another hurdle to clear. God, as David continues to wait for his destiny to be fulfilled and he becomes king as he's been anointed to become, God, for many people here recognize that we are in a period of waiting waiting for things to turn out as we would hope, as we expect, waiting for your promises to come through and to come true in our lives. And so, God, as we wait, I pray we will grow. We will inquire of you and keep inquiring of you and keep listening to your word and keep engaging with your word. And as we hear what you say to us, we'll respond obediently. May we be people of this book. So, God, we do give you thanks for this word that is a lamp, that is a mirror, that is fire, that is a hammer, that is a weapon, that is a double-edged sword, that is a, a scalpel. May it continue to form and shape us into the people.